following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. One of the strongest emotions that you and I wrestle with on a daily basis is our desires, our daily desires. Now, our desires can be, for, we, we have different desires for things. Our desires can either have great, we have great intensity or there are other things that we desire that maybe we can put on the back burner. But I think the strength of a desire is seen is if it leads to action, if our desires lead to action. For instance, a desire for a meal might not carry as much weight as the desire to see a family member or a loved one converted. A desire for academic achievement or promotion should, at least, pale in comparison to the desire for maturity of faith. And in a room this size with this many people, no doubt there are many desires among us. We all are different. God made us individuals. But I lay before you, what is your desire this evening? What is it that drives you forward? And, 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 and to put on top of that, what is it that keeps you striving for that? What is it that motivates you and keeps you striving for that desire? What is it that sustains you in your endeavor? Well, here in our text this evening, we are given the example of a man with great desire. Paul has an overarching desire for the Thessalonian church. And we've been, we've been seeing that throughout this entire book and really in chapter 2. But here, we kind of come to a climax. Just as by way of review, in, in chapter 2, Paul has been talking about how he came to them, not to take from them, but to give them something, to give them the gospel. Then he said that he came with pure motives, and that his pure motives pushed forward his pure manners among them, his conduct among them. We saw also that Paul views himself as a parent. He uses the language as a mother, like a nursing mother, as he cared for them. Paul also used later the idea of a father, the analogy of a father, and how he cared for them, that his conduct, his character, and his care for them were all selfless, selfless toward them. And two weeks ago, we saw that not only were Paul's actions, but his words were pure, and that the Thessalonians accepted not only them as missionaries, but accepted their words as the words of God and not of mere men. And as Paul's been going through these things, he's been, he's been reminding the Thessalonians of his actions among them, but he's also been defending himself. He's been defending himself of false accusations that have come against him, that after he had left Thessalonica, whether it was the Jews who had chased him out or other idolatrous men who've come in, they've seeked to, to shift the Thessalonians' gaze from Paul and from God by, by seeking to undermine Paul's integrity and character. So Paul's been defending himself as well as reminding them of what has happened. And here, in 17 through 20, we come to a pinnacle of just Paul's desire for them. Paul's desire for them and for the gospel to go forth. And so what we see in this text and what we hope to endeavor to see by the end 
is that just as Paul had godly desire, he also needed sustenance. He needed a sustaining power to pull through it. And it's the same thing that you and I need. That as we, as we sojourn through this land and as we, as we pursue to extend the kingdom of Christ, we also need something vital to sustain us in that work. How often we sometimes start a task and it doesn't get finished. We grow tired and weary. But here we have an example of Paul who teaches us this, that godly desire leads to action on behalf of its object, which is sustained by joy in Christ. Godly desire leads to action on behalf of its object, which is sustained by joy in Christ. And I want to look at it in two points this evening. Verses 17 and 18, we have Christian desire. And verses 19 and 20, we have sustaining joy. So if you look at me real quick, at, we'll reread verses 17 and 18. Paul says this, But we, brethren, a term of affection and endearment, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered us. So Paul opens verse 17 with explaining the nature of his departure. Some, it may have been that some of these Jews had been accusing Paul of saying, look, this guy left you. If he really loved you, wouldn't he, wouldn't he have stuck around, even in the midst of affliction? If he really desired your good, his motivations would have kept him here. But Paul goes on to say, no, we've been taken away from you for a short while. They were driven out. And this word for taken away, we can nuance it. And it, it's, it's literally orphaned. And it can go both ways. A, a, a child being orphaned by its parents or a parent being orphaned from his child. So this is, we can get a glimpse into Paul's mind at how he has viewed his departure from the Thessalonians. He views himself as their spiritual father, as a spiritual parent, and thus he's been torn away from them. He's been orphaned from his beloved children, these beloved Thessalonians. He saw himself as their spiritual parent and always desired to see them grow and mature. And his separation has caused him deep pain. At the same time, caused him great desire to return to them. Think of it in our own context. What if, what if you had been, what if you are deprived and bereft of your children or a loved one? The, the, the separation that causes pain between the two. Wouldn't we desire with everything we have in us to seek to have them back? To seek to strive, to, to, to go to any lengths to have our children or our loved ones back? That's the, that's the attitude that Paul is taking here. He's, he's not taking this as, as something small. He's not content to write letters and to hear reports of how the Thessalonians are doing. But he desires to be with them. He desires to commune with them. But not only do we see Paul's great desire for them, but also his determination. He says, we were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Again, Paul was not content with writing letters. He was not content with just hearing how they were doing. But he desired to see them face to face. He desired to gather together with them in one body to worship, to pray, to read the scriptures together, to encourage one another. And I think what Paul is getting at here is, is nothing short than the communion of the saints, the fellowship of believers. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, says that very thing to the Romans. He says that he wishes to be with them so that he might impart to them 
a spiritual gift and that they might be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. So here you have Paul, an apostle of Christ, a man who's been caught up to the third heaven, who's been given divine revelation and who has written most of the New Testament, or at least a major portion of the New Testament, still desiring. He knows his need to gather together within the body. He knows his need of, of mutual encouragement of others' gifts. He knows his, his desires to be with them. His desire is to, is to encourage them as well as to be mutually encouraged by them. Because Paul knows that to make a whole and healthy church, all gifts must be exercised. Paul had his giftings. There were many of them. But nevertheless, Paul had his giftings, but he also desired to see the giftings of others. And as a good pastor and as a good elder in the church, he wanted to cultivate among the people greater exercise of those gifts so that they might build up the body. He knew that to have a a healthy and whole church, that every single gift of God must be exercised. That if the church was not exercising their gifts, they were robbing one another. They were robbing one another of mutual exhortation and encouragement of teaching one another. His desire was to be face-to-face with the people of God. But Paul did not only have desire and determination to be there, but he also knew the stakes, and he also knew what lie between him. He says in verse 18, For we wanted to come to you, but I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered us. In verse 18, we see Paul's desire for them. He's been writing on behalf of of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, the missionaries who were in Thessalonica. And then he interjects with this, I, Paul, more than once, showing his, his desire, his personal interest in these people. But yet he then explains why he has not been able to come. He says that Satan has hindered us. We've tried more than once, but yet Satan has hindered us. And I think when Paul's talking about Satan here, I think in a broad way, he's, he's meaning spiritual forces. Now, Paul, in one sense, got the greatest, one of the greatest compliments in the book of Acts when, when those, the sons of Sceva are trying to cast out a demon. And what does the demon say to those men? He says, Jesus we know, and Paul we know. So even the demons know the name of Paul and his activity and how Paul was advanced in the kingdom of God and they paid him a great compliment in knowing that in, a, in essence he was on hell's most wanted list. But yet, I think Paul here is using it in more general terms of just Satan as the adversary, the spiritual forces that are at work in the world, the, the forces of darkness. That it was not necessarily, that, that behind the material world there are always the spiritual world that is giving movement to everything that happens. That the Jews who who chased Paul out of Thessalonica in the first place were no less doing the bidding of Satan, trying to hinder the advancement of the gospel. And as Paul tried over and over again to return to Thessalonica, he was hindered by these very same forces. Now, whether they were the same Jews in that town or whether it was the thorn in the flesh that Paul that Paul had endured and was continuing to endure with, or whether it was a whole host of other things. Paul's laying before them that, that great truth that he, reminds, that he reminds us in Ephesians, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but that we wrestle against the forces of darkness. 
that, that though we see with our eyes the material things, that behind those material things are the spiritual forces of darkness moving, as well as the spiritual forces of light moving. But Paul is pointing us to a very important truth that we must, that we must be ever, we must have in our minds the ever-present reality of using the gifts of God of prayer, using the gift of, of the Word, the community of the, of the saints, the body of believers, to live life. That we must lean upon these things, that we should not take any stock in the flesh, but that we should lean upon the gifts of, of, of prayer and that we come to God daily saying, Lord, I know the obstacles that lay ahead of me today, and unless you empower me, I will fall. Lord, that unless you fill my mind and you galvanize it, your word in my mind, your truth, I will be led astray. And unless your spirit guide every step of mine today, Lord, I will, I will, I will be in great need. Paul is reminding us, Paul is reminding us something that we've been looking at in, 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 in our morning series on the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom, at least here and now. And it must be advanced through spiritual means. Well, I think some of the applications that come out of verses 17 and 18, and, and what is godly desire, what is the Christian's godly desire, come in a few ways. I think for us here at Antioch, it shows us a qualification of, of pastors and elders and deacons. You know, as we move forward Lord willing, to particularization soon, where we will elect our own officers. And those of you men out there who, are, who desire those offices, is your desire, first and foremost, for the people of God. That you would uphold them as Paul does, as he reminded us in chapter 1, that he is in ceaseless prayer for, for the people. That he is constantly, they're on their, his mind constantly, and he's seeking their good. And secondly, as, as we begin to think about who we want over us as elders and deacons, that we would think about who, that we would desire men who will, who will bring our needs before the throne of grace. Not just on a Sunday morning, not just we will not see them when they administer the Lord's Supper, but that we know without a shadow of a doubt that they are pleading on our behalf before God, that they are inquiring, that they are stirring up gifts and graces among us. For the edification of all the saints. Secondly, not only it gives us a great picture of, of, of pastors and elders and deacons and what is one qualification for that office, for those offices, but also the spiritual gifts within the church. That if you are in Christ, you have a spiritual gift that is absolutely essential for the body of Christ, that is absolutely necessary. In Romans, we're given a list of these gifts, if you'll indulge me to read them. All too often, I think that the more public gifts are exalted, but every single gift is needed. Every single gift is needed. And that if the gifts, the more public gifts of teaching and preaching, if, if they were all we needed, then God would not have given us other gifts. But as it is, they're not sufficient in and of themselves for a healthy and whole church, but that every gift is needed. In Romans chapter 12, Paul gives us a, a list, beginning at verse 6 of chapter 12. 
and this is just but a glimpse. He lists them elsewhere in other places. But at verse 6 he says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, in proportion of his faith, if service, in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I think Paul is exhorting us here this evening to, to really look at our lives. What are the spiritual gifts that God has given you? What are those spiritual giftings that He's blessed you with? Because every single child of God has them. That at that time when He regenerated you, when He called you to Himself, when He gave you His Spirit, He also gave you certain things that are, that are, that are needed for the body. And that... To, and that and, and if, we, if we desire to know what our spiritual gifts are, we should start with checking your desires. What is it that you want to do for the people of God? What is it that, that, that drives you to, to come and say, I, 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 I want to pray for this person? Or, or maybe I want to help with encouraging people and come alongside of them when they're in trial and need. Every gift is needed to make a whole and healthy church. Thirdly, Paul is calling us to, under, to, to spiritual discernment. He's calling us to see the necessity of having spiritual discernment. That opposition to the gospel should not surprise us. Opposition to gospel work should not surprise us. Whether we are proclaiming Christ on the street, whether you are interacting with a co-worker, whether you are gathering around the table in your family, Christian work is hard and laborious no matter how long you've been a Christian. And the spiritual dimension of our walk is real. And that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And this should prompt us to use every means necessary. Every spiritual means that we have been given by God to walk in a way that pleases Him. Paul not only describes his godly desire for the Thessalonians and gives us an example. But he also tells us what sustains him in his work. What sustains him in his work. And here Paul shifts... Paul shifts from past tense to present tense. He kind, of, he kind of jumps off the page in a sense, describing not only what has happened, but why it has happened, and what is his motivating factor behind his work. In verse 18, Paul, or excuse me, verse 19, Paul says this, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Here we see that Paul is sustained by joy. He's sustained by hope and future glory. This, 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 these two verses give us a glimpse of Paul's eschatology in a sense. His, his understanding of the last things and, and how things will play out when Christ returns. He speaks, of, he speaks of Christ's presence coming in verse 19, but then he also says this, his joy, Paul's joy, Paul's joy is grounded in the spiritual fruit he sees from the Thessalonians, as a parent rejoices to see the spiritual fruit in their children. So one of the, one of the sustaining factors for Paul is, is joy in that he sees God at work in the Thessalonians. We're reminded, just we, as we've gone through this book, we've seen Paul tell the Thessalonians that we've seen you turn from idols. 
We've seen you receive the word of God. We've seen you mature in your faith. And that gives us joy because we regard ourselves as your parents. That just as Paul looks at his, the, the Thessalonians as his spiritual children and rejoices in their maturity. I mean, how many, of, how many of you, if we see our children or a loved one, someone we've been praying for and mentoring, begin to have interest in the things of God and to see maturity in their prayers and their understanding of the word? How much does that give you joy? Inexpressible, right? That, we, that our labor has not been in vain. But our prayers and our, and, our, and our daily devotions with our children and our family worship and our meeting together with friends and co-workers is, is producing fruit. And that fruit is evident at, by the work of the Spirit in their life. This is one of Paul's motivating factors. Another one is, is hope. Paul's hope is not in the Thessalonians themselves as if he, he looks upon them as, as, they're these, as they are in the flesh, that they are gifted and have, and have many things. But Paul... His hope is in the transformation that he's witnessed in them, which gives him hope that God is still at work. That God, who has made all of these amazing promises throughout his word in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that he's still the same God and he's still at work. That the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Joseph, the God of Moses... The God of the apostles and the prophets is the same God that Paul prays to and is the same God that you and I pray to. And this gives Paul great hope and motivation for continuing to work. Paul's hope is rooted in the awaiting glory for all the saints that Jesus is coming. Again, he, alludes, he, had, had, he had alluded to Christ's coming. The fruits of the Spirit being evidence of their union with Christ and the hope of eternal life at His coming. Joy, hope. But then Paul also mentions a crown of, of, of boasting or a crown of exaltation. Now, it might seem weird in one sense because we think of the Christian life as, as, as selfless, and it is, and self-sacrificing, and it is. But Paul here is saying that he rejoices and he, at, at, the, at a crown of exaltation. Now, what Paul probably has in mind, at least in his day and age, was, was a crown from one of the Greek games, right? One of these crowns would have been given, and it would have been a symbol of, of honor and exaltation. Paul, Paul may, yes, a, a crown of honor and exaltation. But Paul is not thinking of himself in terms of pride. But Paul is merely thinking of himself in terms of a, being a useful instrument in Christ's hand. He's not using this as a, as a way to boast in and of himself and the gifts and even in his apostleship, but he's using this in terms of, of you Thessalonians are in one sense a stamp of, our, of, of authenticity that God is working through us and that it is our joy and our honor to be used to be a, a tool in the Redeemer's hands to be a conduit through which truth is proclaimed. And Paul is reveling and glorying in the fact that he, enjoy, he gets to see that fruit in this one small church of the Thessalonians. He can boast and rejoice before Christ because he knows his words and actions are pure and his return and Christ's return will make that clear before all men. Paul's hope, joy, and reason for boasting are founded upon God's work in the Thessalonians. He saw with his own eyes the fruit of the Spirit, 
And it sustained him to continue his work, even at great distance, to continue his work as, as an apostle and as a missionary and as a preacher and as a Christian, even amidst great trial. But it's interesting that Paul references Christ's coming. And I think Paul has a few things in mind when he says Christ's coming. First and foremost, and I think this is the driving force behind Paul's understanding of, of the last things, is Paul looks forward, first and foremost, above all things, to seeing Jesus face to face. He looks forward to seeing his Redeemer face to face. You know, and in our day of, of, of battling over, over which view is right, amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism, and those are necessary battles that we must face, Paul kept in his eye the fact that he will see Jesus first and foremost over all these things. And that he desired to see his Redeemer. He, re he desired to see that day when, when his work will become manifest. And that's, that's the second thing that Paul thinks about. That on that day when Christ comes, that all of his work will be manifest. And he can rejoice even more in the fact that God had, God had blessed him in being useful in his kingdom. Thirdly, in the line of Paul defending himself... The, th the third thing that would come at Christ's return would be his vindication. That even though all these false accusations are leveled against Paul, and that men are trying to, to tear him down and to say that he's, he's a false man, that he's a con man, that at, at the second coming he will be vindicated. And I think the, the, the confession uses great language when it says that at the second coming the righteous will be openly acknowledged and acquitted. That on that last day, all Christians will stand before all men and God will openly acknowledge them as his children and will acquit them of all their sins before a watching world, before every man, woman, and child who's ever been born. And so Paul, in one sense, he's entrusting himself to God. That he, he does not necessarily have to fight these battles in a sense because he knows that on that last day, God has the final word. And that because he belongs to God, his motives... His pure motives and mannerisms will be manifest. He doesn't have to defend himself in, the, in that sense of, of, of looking forward to Christ's coming because Christ himself will do it. Paul rejoices in the work of the Thessalonians. He rejoices in the work that Christ has been doing among the Thessalonians. His rejoicing is both present in what he sees with his own eyes and he glories in the future at what will come. The fruit of his labor will be manifested. Christ will call him and the Thessalonians home to himself. And that the evidence of their transformed lives gives them joy and hope in this present age as they look forward to his coming. Paul glories in what God has been doing among the Thessalonians. He, he, he has great desire for them. That desire for their good, for their maturation, is sustained by his joy in that he knows the end, not in full, but he knows the end before it has already happened. And that's something that I think you and I need to take into consideration every single day, that we know, in part, the end before it comes. Now, we don't know every single detail, but we know that one day Christ will come and he will take you home to be with himself. 
that he, will, that he has promised to openly acknowledge you and acquit you before all men. And that gives us motivation and hope in the present. That even when we get bogged down in our weeks, that our, our, our labor is long and hard at times, that when we strive, we strive in our workplaces to share the gospel, we strive to further the kingdom of God in our homes, and oftentimes we are met with opposition. And, we, and, and, it, and it, it, it tends to sometimes discourage us, and we can, or we can at least get discouraged. But yet God has blessed us in giving us Christ and joy in Him and fulfillment in Him to sustain us through the end. Now Paul gives us a great example of himself for us in our day and age. But there's an even more supreme example that we have in Christ. That though Paul had great desire and great joy that sustained him, Christ had even greater desire and joy that sustained him in his work. In our meditation um, earlier this evening, we read this, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy... Who for the joy that is what sustained him, set before him, he endured. There's his determination. He endured the cross. There's his work. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. There's the opposition. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There is the what has already happened, but is what we can take great joy in this evening and great comfort in is that our Savior is sitting at the right hand of God, governing and ruling all things that come to pass. That in Christ we have this great example that, that for joy, and I think that, that joy is not in the sense that we experience joy, but it is, it is like the sense that in creation, right? In creation we have the account that, that God rested from His work. Now we know that God never gets tired, so how can God rest? Well, the idea of rest in that sense is that he stood back and he rejoiced in what he had done. He rejoiced in his works of creation. He, he blessed it as good. And in the same way, Christ, his joy was redeeming a people for himself. His joy was doing the will of his Father that had been decreed from all eternity past and bringing that to fruition that he may bring sons and daughters into the kingdom, sons and daughters that have been ransomed from their sin and redeemed, and that his work on the cross in taking that sin upon himself, taking the wrath of God upon himself, taking the shame of men, the shame of the cross, being executed like a public criminal, that at that, that, that the thought of that accomplished work he rejoiced in, and after that work was finished, he rejoiced even greater, in a greater measure, because it gave him great delight to save his people. And think about that, that God delighted so much to redeem you from sin that he became man. God delighted to ransom you from your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and to welcome you as his children. That should humble us. And that should give us, well, first and foremost, yes, it should humble us and give us a sense of unworthiness. But on the same side, of, on the flip side of that same coin, it should give us joy and motivation for life. 
joy and motivation that our life has intricate meaning because we are redeemed by God, because he loves us and has given himself for us. Paul's desi- Paul shows us here his great desire for the Thessalonians, his desire for them that propelled him to action and that he was sustained by joy in the work of what God was doing through him. And that's the same motivation that you and I have this evening. As we, as we stand upon the edge of a new week, that, that our work is not in vain, that our work is, is, is important because God has called us to it. And that we should desire that work. We should desire it and that we, we should be sustained with joy in what God has done for us. That we might be conduits, just like Paul, in furthering his kingdom, in calling men and women to repentance... And in rejoicing in what God has done for us until he calls us home. Until that great day when we all stand before the throne. And we cast our crowns at his feet. Acknowledging that it is only through him and through his spirit that we were enabled to do anything that we've been rewarded for. Let us pray. Our great God and Father in heaven. Our redeemer. Our friend. Lord, our brother in in the faith, Lord, we praise you and we exalt you and we rejoice in the work that you have done for us in Christ. Lord, we confess that oftentimes we do not see the cross as we ought, that we do not rejoice in our salvation as we ought. So, Father, we pray that you would lift our eyes to heaven, that we would be eager to see you face to face, that you would lift our eyes to your truth, that we might rejoice more and more, as with each passing day, that we would rejoice in our homes, that we would rejoice in the community of saints that you have placed us among. Lord, that we would be, that we would be ever quick to share our faith with, our, with those around us and that we would point others to Christ. Lord, we pray you would empower us this week. We pray that you would take us and dedicate us to your work. Father, even as we take up this, this offering and dedicate it to the advancement of your kingdom, please, Lord, use us to advance your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.